let's say the patient were to approach this by saying, if I were to die tomorrow, would that reduce the net carbon footprint in the world? The AI might take that as an objective science question. Welcome to Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared and hosted by myself, David Savage, that's been bringing you the latest thinking from technology leaders for over eight years. Coming up on today's podcast, we're talking to David Moo, who is the CEO of Cerebral. And we're also going to be talking about Christopher Nolan, because Barbenheimer uh, hit the world cinemas this weekend, and Oppenheimer, the director and writer of Oppenheimer, has been talking about very strong parallels between his film and science, or the science community's worry about AI. First of all, hello Amber, how are you? Hello, Dave. I'm yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks. How are you? You haven't seen either Barbie or Oppenheimer. I haven't, but do you know what? I actually feel a little bit like I'm getting a bit of FOMO because we were literally just saying like everybody that I know went to go watch one of the films or both of the films over the weekend. So no, I haven't seen either, and I feel a bit jealous to be honest. Apparently, um, I, I mean, Barbie is apparently fairly joyous and kind of bubble bubblegum pink and and kind of happy. But mm-hmm. I have seen a lot of people saying that like every girl and woman should go and watch it because it's got some really great ideas in it as well. Mm. Yeah, I've heard the same. I've heard that it's very, like, political, um, which I didn't expect. I think there's a lot of, like, um, like monologues around sort of, like, I don't know, like, feminism and, like, the patriarchy and stuff. And there's, I think there's a lot more in there than what... There's a lot more sort of layers in there than what I was expecting. So I'd be sort of intrigued how to sort of see how they've done that and sort of blend that in with a sort of, like, you know, this kind of nicey nice bubblegum type story of Barbie and then obviously got mm-hmm. other layers um of more sort of you know kind of deeper sort of heavier stuff to it so yeah I'm I'm definitely going to go see it I always find that going to the cinema is a bit of a it's obviously escapist and and kind of fun just to go to the pictures and I know before we hit record, we were saying more stuff should be in the cinemas. The cinemas should be kind of full and streaming's great. But at the same time, if a film goes straight to a streaming platform, it's not quite the same. I think it's, it's it was always one of those things that when I was a kid, I, I would go to the cinema before any big exam because it would help me kind of mentally declutter and relax before something kind of big and anxious and stressful. Really? Yeah. My mum, my mom, who's a teacher, um, despaired. Because I'd be like, well, I've got an exam tomorrow. She'd be like, why aren't you revising? Oh, because if I don't know it now, then I'm not going to. And it's good to be distracted. Yeah, that's a good point. Like you say, if it's not in your head by this point, you can try and panic and get everything in there. But it's just a bit too little, too late by that point, I guess, isn't it? That's a really strange, I don't know, like revision. I'm amazed my parents let me get away with it. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I, I would do that personally, though, but whatever works for you. <laughs> I'm not sure it did, but there we are. <laughs> it was a good it was a good excuse to get out of extra work. Anyway, looking after your mental health is always important. Um, and another reason to be saying, you know, it's good to look after mental health and doing things that are maybe just a bit different. You might want to take your kids to go see Barbie because um, there's the school summer holidays have started. And actually, that can be a pretty stressful time for parents not knowing what to do with their children. So lots of little tangible kind of strings coming together here which is why we've decided that today is a good day to release our interview with David Moo who is talking all about mental health um, services uh, via Cerebral so we'll hand over to that interview and we'll come back afterwards. Today I'm joined by David CEO of Cerebral someone I was lucky enough to interview at Web Summit in November it's lovely to see you again. Great to see you again Dave. Just very quickly for anyone who's not familiar with Cerebral um 
big name in the telehealth space. But perhaps if someone hasn't been seeking those kind of services, something that they're not familiar with, who are Cerebral? Well, Cerebral is one of the largest, uh, most quality-driven tele-mental health companies. So we provide talk therapy as well as medication management in all 50 states. And uh, we've uh, already treated more than 800,000 patients. It's a huge number of patients to have treated. And you've been doing that partly with the help of AI. Now, when we were on stage in November, you had some questions put to you about how AI can play a role in the industry. I'd just like to start by just acknowledging some of the perhaps concerns around AI. Typically, what are they? What are those questions that people come to you and say, well, hang on, David, what about X? Yes. So AI is a new technology. And like any new technologies, the internet, uh, the computer, uh, we have to approach it with a lot of humility. There are certainly a lot of pros and cons of leveraging generative AI. One of the major risks to me, especially in mental health, is the fact that when you interact with AI, they may not pick up on risk in the same way that a trained therapist would. So let me give you an example. If Let's say a patient says, I want to kill myself, and the AI can very easily pick that up. That's simple, right? And they can route them to 911. They can call emergency services as needed. They might connect with the in-person therapist, et cetera, et cetera. But if the prompt is more subtle, for example, let's say the patient were to approach this by saying, well, if I were to die uh, tomorrow, if a human being were to die tomorrow, would that reduce the net carbon footprint in the world, the AI might take that as an objective science question and answer, yes, that would improve the carbon footprint in the world and not really see that there might be a question behind that question. Whereas a therapist would first ask, well, why is it that you're asking that question? That might be what we call passive suicidal ideation. That patient might actually be thinking about killing themselves, right? So that's just one example. But today's AI, I'm very worried about having it directly interface with patients for mental health for those reasons. We're not ready. We don't know if it can take care of these edge cases, and therefore it's lower quality and higher risk as a result of that. So that's the major issue that I, I find problematic with, uh, with companies that are directly interfacing patients with AI for clinical care. And what I find interesting is normally when I'm talking to people in health tech, I'm either talking to a technologist or I'm talking to a clinician, and you have both the science background and this is not your first technology company, right? Yeah, I'm a psychiatrist by training and my background is I did data science work on predicting suicidal behaviors using digital phenotypes. So we put Fitbits on people, we look at their sweat patterns, their texting patterns and things along those lines, even their social media use. And the idea is that how can we use all of that data to predict suicidal thoughts and behaviors and then ultimately prevent them from happening? And so through that for a what I learned is a very sad lesson, which is that mental health professionals in general, this is both therapists and psychiatrists, we do not use data when it comes to care. And that's just not true for other fields of medicine. And I think that's a shame. And that's what's led me uh, to start companies in the mental health space to make sure that we can better use data uh, to, uh, to uh, deliver higher quality care. And Cerebral is the latest instantiation of that. But how scalable is the solution? Because because what you're what you're talking about here sounds fantastic to be able to to treat and help people. If there is this 
sudden upsurge in the number of people seeking help, perhaps that's the best way of looking at it, rather than people who do need help, but people who who are openly seeking help. How many clinicians do you need to be able to treat X amount of people? And and at what point does it it become unworkable? It's a great question. I think it's very scalable. And the way I think about it is this. AI won't replace your therapist, but therapists with AI, using AI, will replace your therapist. And the idea is that they can scale. Let me give you a story about this. So radiology back in the day, you used to have to run around as a radiologist around the hospital because they didn't have computers. You had to look at the actual scan in the patient's room. And so every day, I don't remember the exact numbers, but you can maybe look at 10 different studies. And when the computer came out, uh, it basically put all that data into a very, very structured way. um, And you can see two times, three times, four times as many studies. You can actually scale yourself, right? Similarly here, if it is the case that we can engage the patient, reduce no-show rates for our therapist, A, B, and something I didn't mention about uh, yet, but uh, we can use generative AI to summarize notes for clinicians so they can spend less time with documentation. C, minimize the amount of logistical work that the clinicians have to do, scheduling appointments, sending exercises in between visits, summarizing the treatment plan to the patients. That can all be automated, right, in in a way. We can really amplify the impact of the clinician from, uh, from that perspective. And I'll mention another piece here that is related that I think is really interesting as well. So, Many of the people who are listening uh, to this podcast and people in general, the first question they ask about mental health when they're feeling down or anxious is, should I get therapy or should I get medications? And the issue is, if you go to a therapist, they'll say therapy. If you go to a psychiatrist, they'll say medications. That's the way it works. With generative AI, we can actually educate our patients on what is most helpful at what time. And so based on the questions they're uh, answering and based on their responses and the onboarding, we could recommend the plan that is best for them. Because, again, there are certain cases, there are certain, uh, let's say, if you have severe depression or major depression, both are helpful. And then there are other cases where uh, one is most helpful and the other could be ancillary, right? So, and this is uh, actually, you know, one of our major launches that just happened a few days ago is the Strong Start program where we're actually having group sessions. So basically you could buy a two month package or a four month package of either therapy or medication management, because that's been clinically proven to be the most important. So we're guiding patients to the plans. We're guiding patients along in their mental health journey to make sure that they could uh, get to the clinical outcomes they need. You mentioned there, uh, strong starts rather. It's, it's something that's new. It's the press release yesterday, I think at the time we're recording, um, which is late June. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about Strong Start? Because I think it, it's it's something that's that's quite intriguing. Yeah, it's a data-driven way of really making sure our patients get better. So I'll give you an example, and I think that's the clearest way of uh, thinking about this. Let's say a patient comes in with um, a major depression, and they start a medication, an antidepressant. Now, an antidepressant uh, sometimes takes four to six weeks before it actually works. Right. And so before the actual full effect comes on, the patient may not know that. And so after taking the medication for a few weeks, oh, this isn't working. I give up on psychiatry. I give up on meds. There's no solution. And that's really sad because we've basically turned away the patient from a care that they actually can get that is actually effective. 
So the Strong Start programs are designed so that they can patients can come in and commit to a four-month plan for medications or a two-month plan for talk therapy. And the idea here is that they're going to be able to see the clinical outcomes throughout that longer committed period. And we have data to show this. So patients who stay with us longer during these times, they actually have three times, they're three times more likely to have better at clinical outcomes than those who leave after a month, right? So this is the first time I would say that we actually use clinical outcomes data to engineer a plan for our patients so that they can get better faster. Talk there about clinical patients' data to help you get there faster and improve the patient care. What do you think the future of telehealth is? How do you see it evolving from where we are today? This is really exciting to me, and I would say Strong Start is just the beginning for Cerebral because we're going to completely reimagine the mental health journey for patients. So for example, you might come in, have depression, and you start with therapy and medications, and then after four months, you feel better, and you might not need to see your therapist on a regular basis, so you step away from the therapy program, and you're on a maintenance program that's more digital. It's more education in between. But let's say nine months later, your depression comes back during the winter, you can one-click back and, and talk to your therapist again, right? So, And we're monitoring the patient throughout. They're giving us their, you know, they're filling out their depression score. So we're keeping track of how they're doing, right? So the idea here is that we're using technology and uh, top clinicians to follow patients very closely and be their companion during their entire mental health journey instead of becoming that point solution for either meds or therapy, and uh, instead of being that uh, reactive healthcare system where we completely depend on the patient calling back in to schedule that appointment, right? We want to be proactive. We want to be a collaborator. We want to be the companion to the patient throughout their entire mental health journey. And that, to me, is really exciting. And that's coming within a year or two. That's not something that uh, needs to wait uh, uh, for a long time. We're really excited to build that out. Look, last thing that I wanted to ask you, um, you're someone who's deeply entrenched in this sector, as we've mentioned, asked to speak on stages such as Web Summit. But what questions do you have? When you find yourself talking to your peer group, what are the questions that you think are most important to answer? Yeah, it's an important, important uh, question. I would say I'm concerned about the riskier uses of general AI. And I worry that uh, if people try out more cowboyish ways of using generative AI, it would bring down regulations uh, that would harm the innovation that is absolutely critical for us going forward. So that's one, one major piece. And I do not know what the best answer is for how to regulate AI. And that's one major field, I should say, that uh, requires a lot of uh, investigation and, and effort um, uh, going forward. And then the other piece is I'm, you know, it's, this has always been the case uh, for us where when we show our clinical outcomes and mental health, and let me back up for a second, it's really sad. There are no standards of high quality care for mental health that are broadly accepted. And it's very sad. That's not true for any other field of medicine. Uh, but in mental health and psychiatry, that is the case. And it's really sad. And that's very problematic 
Because when we go to an insurance company or when we go to a partner or when we go to uh, the press and say we have great outcomes and we show them our outcomes, they would say, well, 10 other companies say they have great outcomes too. And we say, well, no, no, but the data there isn't right because of this or that or that or they're not comparing apples to apples or they're, you know, there's something funny going on. Oh, but they all, you all say the same thing and therefore it's a wash. So because there's no standard, this is causing great pains for, uh, for the, for the companies that are really trying to do good work here because they don't get the credit on the other side. It makes it almost impossible for us to move to value-based care. And, uh, this is why we we can see value-based care really taking hold in other subspecialties of medicine. Mental health is lagging behind on that. And so, um, I know there are some good people who are working on this, but I really hope that we, we jet fuel that so that we can really discern the wheat from the chaff and be able to support the companies that are really producing value and helping out patients uh, more so than others. Thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again. Great to see you again, Dave. Right. Um, look, I thought this was really interesting for a number of different reasons. Just a couple that I'm going to bring up. Um, have have you ever this is a really this is a question i've got to be really careful how i phrase it but would you ever be in a position where you would kind of think i would use a chat bot as kind of a therapy style because i don't think i would i think i would want to talk to someone i think if i knew it was ai obviously it does work but i would prefer the idea of talking to someone if i needed to talk to someone yeah no i completely agree i think it's I think it's a good idea, but I think, I don't know how much like value you'd get from it. Like me personally, I think if I started to talk to a chatbot and I want to sort of like, you know, get some genuine help because I was in a, you know, a bad place or I just, I needed to kind of on, you know, uh, sort of offload, sorry. I think, I don't know if it would seem a little bit too, pardon the pun, but like robotic, do you know what I mean? Or like the responses that they give, I wasn't sure if it was actually like genuine or I just I don't know if I'd get much from it to be completely honest yeah. sitting behind a screen and just having a automated conversation with a chatbot like I just yeah I just don't think it would ever compare to the real thing of like going to speak to someone and getting that human interaction and like someone's yeah. actual opinion on these types of things um yeah and I I totally get that everyone's different and some people for some people just being able to text and it'd be discreet mm. is really, really helpful. And this is the point, like, it's a broad church. We're all very, very different. We're obviously two individuals who probably could deal with finding the time and going and seeing with someone. But I thought it was really interesting that in the interview, David talks about the nuance uh, that you would struggle with direct in- interface between an AI and a patient. He talks about whether or not the world would be better off from a carbon footprint without without somebody existing in it. And the fact that to an AI, that would be quite a logical question that, yes, with with one less person in the world, the carbon footprint would be reduced, but it wouldn't pick up on the idea that someone might be having suicidal thoughts because it's not direct enough. We're, we're more nuanced. And I think that's where David makes a, a really good point that AI has plenty of opportunities, but at the same time, it's limited and it should be an augmentation tool to help scale and to help help therapists treat people yeah i think that's a really really good point because i think we as humans we we would obviously pick up on that and be a bit more sort of like empathetic and then try to give like different um sort of opinions on this sort of stuff and i don't know i just i don't know if like ai will be that mature just yet like you said it would look at it from a very like logical kind of perspective rather than this individual is is clearly 
you know suffering or needs some help or I, yeah I just think sometimes with these types of things like you need that human sort of layer um mm. and I, I think kind of going back to what you sort of initially asked I think for people who would struggle to go and sit down and speak to a therapist or sort of reach out and speak to somebody about this sort of stuff because maybe there's still a level of like shame or embarrassment or just kind of fear around it I think in that sense it's really good because you can do it for the comfort of your own home like you say maybe you're sort of texting so it's very like natural and it's kind of like talking to like a friend almost but um yeah personally I think I would struggle with it but I think the actual concept I think some people would really be able to get on board with it and it would take away that kind of that fear factor that a lot of people have of actually going and sitting down and speaking to a therapist sort of one-on-one and I also think he makes a really good point where he talks about scalability and he talks about um, radiologists and when the advent of computers came along a radiologist didn't have to walk around a hospital and physically look at a film and that increased their workload by like three or four percent brilliant scalability but my concern, I suppose, around scalability and AI is how do we then use that? Do we go, oh, we need to hire less radiologists now and just make the, the, a situation where you have fewer radiologists with a bigger workload and possibly not spending as much time looking at each film as they could have done? Or do you keep the same number of radiologists and allow them more opportunity to give better detailed insight into making assessments and i suppose it's the same with with ai in therapy perhaps like the scalability is there does that mean you need less therapists or does it mean actually that the therapists you've got have the opportunity to do more and i suppose that's the bit where it's like let's not let's not kind of look at ai and go ah scalability more efficiency less overheads because actually that's not going to get anyone better care yeah like i said i think because of the sort of the pressure obviously in this sort of space and people are sort of like there is a bit of a mental health sort of crisis across the world I think do you know what I mean like not just obviously here kind of in the UK but I think in that sense it will help and it will take some of the pressure off of like the NHS and sort of like more like private services and stuff as well but so it will give people who haven't got the luxury of going to go through like a private therapist they'll get the opportunity to speak to people so I, I don't know it's a tough one isn't it but I, I just think I don't think you'll ever be able to sort of like substitute like a real kind of in, you know, person experience with this. Like I just, I see what you're saying around like the scalability, but I just don't think there'd be like a trade-off in that kind of sense. Because I think when you look at something over a text or an email, um, you can kind of take that in different ways. So I think if an AI is sort of like giving you advice or trying to help or, you know, um, you know, you'll read the text and I think you can interpret that in different ways, which in itself can be quite dangerous. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a really tough one. I think it's a good idea, but I think it still has limitations. So which then will obviously sort of stop it sort of scaling up massively. But um, I think it's just almost like a level of kind of personal preference a little bit as well. Like if you can take to this and you think it's a good suggestion for you, then perfect. But then some people will always prefer to go and sit down and have that human interaction. Now, before we uh, wrap up, I did say that we talk a little bit about Christopher Nolan and the very strong parallels between Oppenheimer and scientists that are worried about AI. I thought this was interesting because Chris Nolan highlights the difficulties of applying nuclear weapon-style regulation to artificial intelligence, and he warned that the United Nations had become a diminished force. 
um, to look at international control of nuclear weapons and feel the same principles could be applied to something that doesn't quite require mass industrial processes. It's a bit tricky. I thought this was interesting. And there is a link back to what David was talking about, because David, in his interview towards the end of it, talks about the fact that he's concerned about the cowboyish use of generative AI, which could cause regulation, which limits innovation. And it's this thing, isn't it, of it's all very well. Once, once the genie's out the bottle, we now have 12,500 nuclear warheads in the world. Like, the ability to, to, to blow the world up over and over and over and over again. And it's not been particularly well thought through in terms of regulation. It's just, it costs a lot to produce a nuclear warhead and no one uses them because it's mutually assured destruction. It's not a blueprint to go for AI. And I think it's really interesting that Chris Nolan's brought this up and, and used his platform with this film to talk about something that's very topical right now and, and obviously has echoes of looking at looking at kind of how we've uh, you know responded to new technology in the past yeah like I say it's, i think it's super clever as well because obviously this film has got loads of hype around it but like you say tying it in with a really like relevant subject and stuff i don't know i just think it adds to that kind of buzz around the film and people want to sort of to go and see it and um yeah it's a really sort of interesting sort of point though i think I think it's a strange one because I think with the with like nuclear weapons, obviously you can see like the destruction and the devastation that it causes, and you can only see kind of the bad, obviously the bad from that. But I think with AI, there is bad there, but because so many people are sort of just seeing the good and how efficient it is, and um, you know it helps me with my job, or it, you know it can create sort of different platforms, like you were just talking about, obviously the um, sort of the, the therapist sort of thing as well. I think that almost kind of masks sort of the, the sort of more kind of worrying stuff that is there as well. Um, it's less obviously destructive. Exactly. So therefore... Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. It's like because it's yeah, because people will just see what they want to see. And like I say, because there is so much good or there's so much exciting news of tech kind of stuff around it. Um, it's oh, this is fantastic. And like I say, it's this big sort of hot topic right now, which is it's brilliant. And there is loads of really good that can come from it. But because there's so much good, like I say, it does kind of gloss over some of the not so good stuff that is also there and how it can be used in a more sort of dangerous way as well whereas obviously with nuclear weapons it's like well they're dangerous and so people probably wouldn't put the two together and draw on those comparisons but actually like you say they can have um both of them can have you know massive sort of effects and, and sort of be equally as dangerous i guess Look, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Amber, thanks for taking the time to have a chat. Um, we hope you've enjoyed the episode with David. Thank you for being our guest this week and we'll be back on Thursday.